Uh, we're excited to have Davy Blackburn in the house today, so will you give him a real Crossroads Church welcome as he comes to share with us right now. Thank you so much, Crossroads. Thank you, Pastor Craig. It's, um, it's an honor to be here with you guys. I, um, I'm thrilled to be able to be at a church here in Indy. And we oftentimes get to travel and speak and share our story, but there's nothing quite like being kind of in, in, the, in the hometown where many of you guys are very familiar with our story, and many of you guys prayed for our family as we were walking through that. I know as a church, you guys prayed for us, and so I am um, eternally indebted to you and so grateful. Um, if you don't believe in the power of prayer, um, walk through something difficult and have a body of believers lift you up in prayer. Because I'm going to tell you, you feel it. It's palpable. It's like a hammock of grace lifts you up when a local body and local bodies all over the community begin to lift up in prayer. There's something supernatural that breaks. There's breakthrough that happens when we pray. And so thank you so much for that. It means the world to, to my family and to myself. And I, just, I want to talk on the subject of pain today. And the reason I want to talk about this subject is because this is something that none of us are exempt from. Every single one of us have encountered some kind of a valley. And so I don't want to necessarily talk so much about my story. I want to talk more about, about the story of Jesus because Jesus encountered the gravest of valleys when he went to the cross. But come on, how many of you know that no matter what we go through, we can walk through it triumphantly because three days after Jesus went to the cross, he got up from the grave. And he declared the truth over death, over sin, over guilt, over shame, that he is risen. And because of that, Christian, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and you don't have to be a victim of your circumstance. You can walk through it victoriously. And that's what I'm here to declare to you today if you get nothing else in here. But I, here's what I know. I know that every single one of us have walked through some kind of a valley. And if you haven't, you were born yesterday, you should probably be in the kids' ministry. You shouldn't be in here today, okay? <laughs> And, and this is what I know about every person in this room. There's one of three types of people in here. You're either in a valley right now, or you are on your way out of a valley. Praise God, he's seeing you out of that valley, or you're heading into a valley. And so maybe you might not find yourself in a difficult circumstance right now, a trial, tragedy, or transition, but maybe this is a, a Sunday where you need to take notes and you need to file this away, put it in the archives, and pull it out later, because I strongly believe that it's imperative for us to train for the trial that we're not yet in. Jesus did not pack any punches. He didn't try to pull the wool over our eyes, friends. He said, in this world, you will have sorrow, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. And because of that, you don't have to be overcome by your circumstances. You can be an overcomer. Three and a half years ago, our family walked through the gravest of tragedies that it's something we would have never asked for. We wouldn't wish on our, our worst enemies. Um, I came home from the gym uh, in an early morning, November 10th, 2015, and I walked into my living room and found my beautiful wife, Amanda. We had been married for seven years, and she was pregnant with our second. We had a 15-month-old. Found her on, face down on our living room floor in a pool of blood. And um, it was a story that rippled across our city, across the country, and it turned my world upside down. And I need you to know that in the midst of all of this stuff, God is good. Right. And today we're going to talk about what does it look like, as you guys are in this series, the road to healing 
What does it look like to heal? What does it look like to hurt, but to hurt with hope? I want to back up and tell you about how I met Amanda. We may have a picture of our family. Uh, this was in the spring of 2015, and that was our, that's our son Weston right there. Um, but I, I met Amanda w- w- while I was away in college. Uh, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Roll Tide, hello. And any, no? Okay. Hey, come on, all right. <laughs> Went to undergrad in a small school called Southern Wesleyan University on a baseball scholarship. It's a si- sister school of Indiana Wesleyan. And there on the athlete hall of our freshman dorm, I met uh, this guy named Gavin. Now, I was unsure as to why he was on the athlete hall because he was a golfer. You know, I just didn't understand... <laughs> We used to joke around, man, we became best friends because he was a, a strong follower of Jesus, wanted to see great things happen on his team for the Lord, and so we, we became best friends, and we used to joke around that we needed to go and meet two girls who were best friends so he and I could just hang out all the time. And after our freshman summer, he came back sophomore year, and he said, man, I don't know why I didn't think about this, but I need to introduce you to my girlfriend. He started dating her after our, fre- at our, our freshman summer. He had dated her all through high school. I need to introduce you to my girlfriend's sister. She would be incredible for you. And so they all grew up in Elkhart. He goes, dude, why don't you come up with me over fall break to Elkhart, Indiana? I was like, what's in Elkhart? He said, uh, cornfields and RVs. <laughs> That's about it. And this really beautiful girl. So come and meet her. And, and if you guys don't hit it off, it's fine. We can just hang out the whole time. It'll be great. So we went up, met her. Uh, we went to a concert that night. And then we went to where all great relationships start. Come on, steak and shake. Let's go, somebody. How many of you know the Shekinah glory exists in the Frisco Melt Burger, right? <laughs> We went to Steak and Shake, and we're sitting across the table from each other, and, and she's drinking a strawberry milkshake, and I'm more godly, so I got a chocolate milkshake. And, and so we're sitting there, and I kind of try to crack a joke with her to break the ice a little bit. I'm like, hey, milkshake drinking contest, ready, go. And then I say something really witty and cute, and, and she laughs, and she shoots milkshake out of her nose in that moment. And I look at her across the table, and I go, that's going to be my wife right there. <laughs> When you know, you know, right? We started this long-distance dating relationship. She went to school in Florida, and I was still in school in South Carolina. And then after we both graduated college, we ended up getting married in 2008 and started working at this really fast-growing church as youth pastors in South Carolina called New Spring Church. And man, we were just living, I mean, it was the dream job. We thought we would be there for the rest of our lives. We were watching teenagers meet Jesus every single week, this rapid movement of God that was happening over the upstate of South Carolina. Then all of a sudden, something started stirring in our spirits. I'm not sure if you've had that feeling before, this like holy discontent, this like righteous angst that that feels like God's pulling you and tugging you to do something that's much bigger than yourself, something that scares you, but at the same time, it, it keeps you up at night with, with excitement. It wakes you up in the morning. You start salivating at the mouth. You're like, man, I want to go be a part of a cause that's bigger than myself, that puts me in spaces where I have to be completely dependent and desperate on God. And so God started calling us to plant a church. Now, I don't know if you've ever planted a church before, but oftentimes it feels like God calls you to plant a forest and drops you in the middle of a parking lot, right? Come on, amen. And so we prayed against it for eight months. We're like, we, we can't, no, we can't plant a church. And, and, and after about eight months, have you ever argued with God? He usually gets his way. After about eight months of arguing with God, he made it very clear to us that we were supposed to move to Indianapolis and start this church. And so we packed up a moving van November 11th, 2011, and moved to Indianapolis. I'll tell you that date because it's really important, November 11th, 2011. When we got on the ground here and we got a realtor, we knew that we needed to make a statement that we were rooted here in Indianapolis. This was going to be our city. This is where we were going to plant our roots. 
And so this realtor was a man of faith. And so we were like, man, this is gonna be awesome. God's on our side. This is how we're gonna find this house where we can buy a house here and we can set up shop. We begin to start this church. And so he took us around to houses to visit one day. And the very first house that we found was a house on 2812 Sunnyfield Court. And Amanda goes running around the house and she comes back bright-eyed. She's like, Davey, this is our house. This is our house. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second. I've watched Chip and Joanna. I know you're not supposed to buy the first house. We don't know where safe neighborhoods are. We don't know where the good schools are, where we want to start this church. So let's take a look at some other houses. And so we do. We take a look at about 20 other houses. And then we come back to that house at 2812 Sunnyfield Court. And she gave me that look, husbands, that you've gotten before. The, the, we, you should have listened to me the first time. It would have saved us a lot of time. Look, you know what I'm talking about? And so we put an offer in on 2812 Sunnyfield Court. Now, it was a lowball offer because we were planting a church. We had no idea where our revenue was going to come from. But the, the realtor, was a, he was a man of faith. And so he goes, hey, I'm going to trust God with you. And so he puts that offer in, and they laughed us off the negotiating table. I said, you better come back with a much better, bigger offer than that because we've turned down three offers much higher already. And so we went back to Brownsburg where we were staying at her grandmother's house and we just prayed about it. We said, God, we don't, we don't have to be in this house. We want you to open the doors. We want you to shut the doors. We'll follow you wherever you want us to go, wherever you want us to plant this church. And Amanda's grandmother used to tell us, faith is living without scheming. And so that night we felt God put it on our hearts, put the same exact offer in. So we went back to our realtor the next day, and we go, put the same offer in. And he, before, was like, I'm trusting God, I'm trusting with you. That time he looked at us, he was like, are you smoking something? That's not, not going to work, right? He put the offer in, and they accepted. And that became our house, 2812 Sunnyfield Court. I mean, it was an awesome house. It was it was such a beautiful, beautiful house with so many great memories that we started. We started our church in that house. The very first people that met Jesus in our church met Jesus right there in that living room. We, we started with four people in a living room the first night. And I preached this message called Invite. In the very next week, you know how many people we had? Four. <laughs> so I had to totally change my message. I preached another message called Invite Harder, right? <laughs> I'll never forget, we actually Skyped in her sister and brother-in-law from Elkhart, and we called ourselves a multi-site church. Come on, right? You know, we had a pregnant woman come in sometime, one, one night, and we said, hey, you count as two, all right? That's just, just, we started our kids' ministry back in our master bedroom and put on veggie tails for them, and I can't tell you how many nights we'd crawl into our sheets, and there'd be goldfish crackers in our sheets, you know, just don't despise the days of humble beginnings. It was a beautiful, powerful place of ministry in that house. We brought Weston home when, when we had him in 2014. We brought him home from the hospital, and we started life with him there, and it was just a powerful, powerful house. But that was also the house on November 10th, 2015, that I walked into my greatest nightmare. And I walked across that threshold and, of the door, and I ran to Amanda's side, and she was, she was unconscious, but she was breathing very laboredly. And, and so I, I tried to call the paramedics, and fumbled around with things. There's blood everywhere, and it didn't make sense what, what was all disheveled across the floor. I didn't understand what was happening. and could hear Weston cooing up in the crib the entire time. And um, it took about three minutes for the paramedics to get there. It felt like it took three hours. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that where everything seems like it's going in fast motion and in slow motion all at the same time. The paramedics got there and attended to her, and and we followed them to the hospital, and I sat in the waiting room, and I just shook, holding Weston. I said, Weston, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And man, 
I just believed wholeheartedly that we were gonna be able to go back and see Amanda and she was gonna be stabilized, she was gonna be sitting up in her bed, sipping water, everything was gonna be fine because man, stuff like this doesn't happen to people like us. This is stuff you see on the news, but not to people, especially people who have, who have left everything, left the dream to go and pursue after God's call. It doesn't happen to people who are in ministry. Me and God had this pact. Like, like God, okay, I'm gonna go do whatever. Like Our family will give you our lives, but you've gotta protect my family. You've got to provide for us. The next thing I know, I'm in the waiting room and doctors and investigators come in and they begin to tell me what happened. That she had three bullet wounds in her. One was in her arm, one had grazed over her back and one was through the back of her head. And that the bullet was lodged behind her eye and that if the swelling in the brain would go down, then maybe they could operate but the prognosis looked really grim. Can I tell you, I had a lot of faith in that moment. It might have been a mixture of of shock and denial and faith all at the same time, but either way, I grabbed the doctor's hands and I began to pray. I said, God, if you want to perform a miracle in this moment, I know that there are skeptics in this hospital, doctors and physicians who don't believe in you, they believe in the power of science. Would you right now use Amanda as an example that you are the living God, that you perform miracles, that you are still active today? God, would you heal brain matter right now? Would you sweep a revival across this hospital? And I had so much faith in that moment, but 24 hours later, she was pronounced dead. November 11th. 2015, four years to the day that we packed a moving van to move to Indianapolis. What do you do when God seems to disappoint you? What do you do when you find yourself in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death? I didn't know what to do. All I knew to do was to go back to the thing that had been planted in me throughout my entire upbringing. It was like muscle memory. See, I joke around a lot that I had a drug problem growing up, that because I was a pastor's kid, I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. Come on, you guys know what a pastor's kid's life is like, right? But man, can I tell you, I'm so glad that my parents drugged me to church every single Sunday. I'm so glad they had me in kids' ministry because I had no idea what kind of deposits were being planted in my heart. Stories of these heroic figures in scripture who were human that walked through suffering like us and yet God was good in the middle of their circumstance. Had no idea when I would need to withdraw from those deposits. Can I tell you, Crossroads Church, if you're a parent in here, drag your kids to church. Keep putting deposits in them. You have no idea when they'll need to withdraw from that. There is trouble in this world, but take heart. He has overcome this world. I had no idea what to do, and so I just went back to what I knew to do. It was muscle memory. I went to scripture, and I remember one morning reading this this book of the Bible that I never understood before I walked through this valley, Psalms. Come on. Can Can we be honest that sometimes the Bible can be confusing, and one of the most confusing books there is is the book of Psalms. Most of it is written by this guy named David who became King David, and in like one chapter, he'll be like, God, I feel you so near to me. Your breath is on my neck, and then another chapter, he's like, where are you? You abandoned me, you know? It's like, somebody get this guy some medication. He sounds schizophrenic right now, you know? I didn't get it until I walked through a valley, and then I understood what that felt like. I understood what it felt like to wake up some mornings and to have this peace that passed all understanding that was guarding my heart and mind. I understood what it, what it meant when scripture said that he is near to the brokenhearted. I understood what it was like to look in front of national television cameras and to declare, to declare the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living when all I had experienced was death. But can I be honest? I know we're not used to being honest in church, but can I be honest for a second? 
I also knew what it meant like what, what, it, what it meant to wake up the next morning and all I wanted to do was end my life. I was so despondent, I had no idea how I was going to live without Amanda. And I'll never forget one morning reading Psalms, and I came across a very familiar passage, Psalm 23. Come on, perhaps you grew up and your grandmother had the feathered hair hippie Jesus picture up on her wall, right, that was holding the lamb, the one that passes out suckers and hugs all the time, you know what I'm talking about? It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Or you got the coffee cup, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But I came across verse four, and this is what stopped me in my tracks that morning. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the Lord stopped me and said, Davy, that is you right now, and I want to teach you something in this moment. And I began to see this verse open up, this passage open up in ways that I had never seen it before. And so when I saw that, the Lord said, hey, I want you to go back and read. Begin at the very beginning, and let's walk through this together. And that morning, God transformed my life, and I'm praying that in this right here, what he revealed to me transforms your life as you're walking through your valley right now. Verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And that means that when we give Jesus the keys to our life, when we turn our lives over to him, we yield to him, let him be our shepherd, let him be our savior. Let him be our guide. When that happens, we lack for nothing, friends. Whatever else we try to fill our own desires with, the things of this world, they will not satisfy. The, the, the drugs, the alcohol, the meaningless sex, the relationships, the career, whatever it is that we're trying to fill this God-sized void in our heart, it will fall short, but Jesus, our shepherd, will always satisfy. He is enough. Without him, we are nothing. If we have Jesus and nothing else, we have everything we need. If we have everything else, but we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I love that verse. Verse two, it goes on. He says, he, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That sounds like a beautiful, beautiful season of life, doesn't it? Like a vacation at the beach or like a day at the spa. It's like everything is up and to the right. The business is going well. The family's going well. Come on, we're actually not arguing on the way to church, right? Most of the time it's like, shut up, we're going to worship Jesus, you know, like, Oh, things seem peaceful and serene. It's so great. It's like, man, blessings upon blessings. Life feels good. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness, verse 3, for his name's sake. I even love that. The fact that when I give Jesus the keys to my life, there's this beautiful exchange that happens where I swap all of my sin for all of his righteousness, and he begins to change me from the inside out. He's not looking to just try to modify my behavior or correct everything on the outside. No, he's changing my heart, my attention, my affections, my desires to align with his heart so that everything else then changes, and then I become a change agent on the outside as well with everything that I come in contact with. That's an amazing verse. Verse one through three seasons of life, friends, are awesome seasons of life, but verse four always comes. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Can I tell you what I used to think? I used to think, quite honestly, that verse four seasons of life, the valley of the shadow of death, were seasons where I was being punished for something I had done wrong. I mean, isn't this the first place that we go? You get that phone call, you get the cancer diagnosis, and you go, wait, wait, God, hold on. Are you, is this, are you trying to get me back for something that I, 
I mean, I thought that that was like past. I thought my sin was as far from me as the east is from the Are you trying to get, isn't that where we normally go? And that's what I thought until God showed me the juxtaposition of verse three and verse four that morning. Those two verses are next to each other for a reason. If you look at it, you see verse three, it says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then verse four says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads me, hold on, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Perhaps the valley is not this place that we find ourselves fallen into because we have wandered away from God. Now, certainly we can wander into some valleys by our, on our own volition and by our own accord. There are some unnecessary pain that we don't have to go through if we follow God's ways and God's word, but that is not always the case. There are so many valleys in life that are a result of us living in a broken world. Perhaps the valley is not this place where we fall into and God's like, well, I sure hope you can get yourself out of there. I'll be waiting up here when you... Get out. Perhaps, friends, some of those paths of righteousness that verse 3 talk about are, in fact, valleys of the shadow of death. Let me say it this way. Maybe there are some aspects of our growth and our relationship with Jesus, our sanctification, if you will, that could not otherwise be possible if we don't walk through something difficult. Come on, we all know this intuitively. I mean, we've heard the old adage, no pain, no gain. Many of us like to live by the philosophy, especially in Western American culture, no pain, no pain, you know? Let's we'll keep that at bay. But the reality is, is that our faith does not grow unless it's put under duress. You've got to understand your faith is a muscle. It is not something that you can just walk into a service and you can get downloaded on you just by going, God, give me more faith. It's kind of like patience. You start praying for patience, guess what God does? He puts you in situations that require your patience to grow. This is the same thing with faith. Faith is a muscle. Now, faith grows by the hearing of God's word, but most importantly, by going out and doing it under difficult situations. And so just like your faith is a muscle, so you cannot grow unless your life is being put under direction rest. So perhaps, friends, the valley of the shadow of death is not punishment for something that we've done wrong. Perhaps it's preparation into a greater potential for our future. Maybe it's not an interruption to our story, as we often think of it as. Maybe it's an invitation into a greater story. Maybe God wants to do something in us so deeply that it, that it matriculates out of us and he can do something powerful through us. So God said, in that moment as I'm reading scripture, he said, this is what I want to do. I said, well, what are you trying to do in me then, God? He said, well, keep reading. So I kept reading. Verse 5, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I felt like God told me this first thing, that he was making me dangerous. Maybe, friends, in your pain, he's trying to make you dangerous. I mean, think about this. How dangerous of a dude do you have to be to sit down and dine in the presence of your enemies? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I love war movies, especially the old school ones, like Gladiator, Braveheart, Lord of the Rings, you know? Like, the movie 300, come on. Gerard Butler makes a lisp look awesome, doesn't he? This is Sparta, you know? I just imagine when I read this verse, I imagine this, like, 
this war scene where this guy goes out into the battlefield and he's surrounded by enemy armies and yet he decides to dine in the presence of his enemies. He's like looking up at the, the armies on the hillside. He's going, hey, before I open up a can of whoop booty on you, I'm going to open up a can of Chef Boyardee right here. What in the world gives this guy so much confidence that he can sit down and dine in the presence of his enemies? Well, he knows deep down inside that what surrounds, what surrounds him is greater than what surrounds him. Come on. He knows greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. No weapon formed against me can prosper. He knows that no matter what, if he is in Christ, there is nothing that can harm him that would cause him eternal harm. Come on. It sounds like this guy that I... That I, that I know of you, I know you're familiar of, with the, the Apostle Paul. He wrote three quarters of our New Testament. He said this phrase, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What do you do to a guy who lives by that philosophy? I mean, they tried to stop him. Maybe you're in here and maybe you would relate to the Apostle Paul. Because before he was Paul, he was Saul. And he was so vehemently opposed to this message of Christianity that he lived his life pulling Christians out of their homes, dragging them away to prison, and then trying to execute them to stop the message of the gospel. And yet he had a radical encounter with the living God, with the person of Jesus in Acts chapter nine on the road to Damascus, and God changed his, his, his identity from Saul to Paul, changed his attentions and his affections, began to give him a new route, a new direction, and a new course, and then he became the biggest proponent of Christianity, spreading the gospel further and faster than anybody had ever seen up to that point. And he lived by the philosophy to live as Christ, to die as gain. They tried to stop him. They were like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Let's put him in prison. And then Paul would start a prison ministry from the inside, and all the jailers got saved. They're like, don't. That didn't work. Okay. All right, here's what we'll do. We'll beat him. We'll flog him. We'll, we'll bring him out into the public square. We'll make a, a demonstration of him. And then everybody who watched saw with what triumph he walked in and what grace he walked in in receiving the beating, and they all wanted to know what hope is it that he has, and they all get saved. And they're like, oh, okay, that didn't work either. Let's kill him. Okay, you make him a martyr, and more people get saved. And he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. As long as I live, I preach the gospel. If I die, great. I get to be with the living gospel, Jesus. So his worst day becomes his best day. Come on. This is a dangerous dude. You can't do anybody who does, you can't do anything to the person who values his life this little. <laughs> Come on, I need you to know that before anybody tried to take Amanda's life, she surrendered it long before. Her life was not her own. Friends, our lives are not our own. The reason we are full of worry and, and stress so much is because we think we hold the keys to our life. And I'm telling you, whatever is over your head is still under God's feet, that he sits on the throne, and that we've given up our lives to him. If you try to gain your life, you lose it. But when you lose your life, you gain all of it. When you live by the philosophy of, okay, it doesn't matter what you do to me because my worst day will become my best day. If you kill me, I'm with Jesus. Then as long as I live, I'm going to spread the gospel. That's a dangerous dude right there. You see, there's this, um, this symbol that has been really powerful for us throughout this whole process, and that is the symbol of a sword. And the reason it's been powerful for us is because I gave Amanda this sword, a Braveheart sword, for, 
Valentine's Day when we were engaged. Chocolates, flowers, Braveheart swords, you know? <laughs> she was away at school in Florida, and I just imagined this, like, oblong box being shipped to her dorm room and all of her dorm mates surrounding her like, oh my gosh, it's got to be the biggest bouquet of flowers. And she pulls out this sword. <laughs> okay. Inside the box, there was also this poem that I had written her called The Fight. And uh, I'd burned the, edge of the edges of this poem to make it look like papyrus scroll. And essentially, the poem said, for the rest of my life, I promise to fight for your heart. And I'm inviting you into the greatest fight of all time, and that's for the hearts of people who don't know Jesus. When we got married, we did what's called a first look where the whole auditorium was empty, and she walked down the aisle just for me before the ceremony. And I didn't notice this, but behind her as she walked down, she had another brave heart sword that she presented to me. We've got a picture of that right here. She said, today, I'm joining you in that fight. Now, there's a, a single dude in here. You're like, okay, Braveheart sword, <laughs> epic poem. <laughs> like, <laughs> the reason this has been a powerful symbol for us is because of the way a sword is fashioned. It's fashioned by a specialty blacksmith, a specialized blacksmith known as a swordsmith where he puts a piece of metal that otherwise would look like it would, could be not used. It, it's worthless. He puts that metal into a degree, a, a fire of temperatures upwards of 2,100 degrees, pulls it out, put, puts it on an anvil, and then takes a hammer, and he begins hammering that piece of metal to try to shape it into a sword. Friends, I need you to understand that whatever circumstances you're going through, they can either shake your faith or they can shape your faith. And I wonder, I wonder if you've walked in here and you feel like the enemy is hammering you over and over and over with doubt or discouragement. And I need you to understand that what the enemy means to discourage you, what the enemy means to deter you, what the enemy means to quite possibly even destroy you, God means to make you dangerous. He's wielding you as a weapon, friends. He's forging you into a ferocious warrior. Genesis 50 says what the enemy meant for evil, God means for good and for the saving of many lives. And when you walk through something difficult and you walk through it in triumph because of the spirit of God inside of you, what it does is it sends a light out into the world in the midst of darkness and it saves lives. And the real culprit of pain and brokenness in this world are not, listen, the three men who are on trial for killing my wife. No, the real enemy is unseen. The real enemy is Satan and what he represents. And when lives are saved out of our story and lives are saved out of your story, what it does is it partners with God in the ministry of reconciliation where you stand at the gates of hell and you redirect traffic and you snatch people up out of the clutches of the enemy. And that, friends, is how we get vengeance on the enemy. You're dangerous against the kingdom of darkness. You're dangerous for the kingdom of light. You're not fighting fire with fire. You're not fighting bitterness with bitterness. You're fighting it with the message of hope and truth and love and forgiveness. It makes you dangerous. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make you dangerous. The second thing I felt like he told me this morning, you guys are going to have to listen faster, um, <clears throat> is he's increasing your capacity. He's increasing your capacity. 
If you keep reading, it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I don't know if you've ever seen an anointing process, maybe a baby dedication. Um, I'm not sure if you guys use uh, anointing oil ever in any kinds of prayer ceremonies, but where this comes from is the Old Testament where a prophet would anoint a king. And the message of anointing is you're, you're being set aside for a great purpose. And, and so there is a calling that is implied within anointing. And I need you to understand that in the Old Testament, this was practiced in isolated circumstances, but Scripture tells us that every one of us as followers of Jesus are anointed, we're set apart for a specific purpose. God has a unique and distinct purpose in mind for you. He wants you to carry out that unique and distinct purpose. You were not an accident. You have been, you have been created on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. You are destined for distinct and unique impact in this world. But the way that olive oil is made, the oil that's used for anointing, is, th- is with olives. And those olives have to undergo a process, and the process is a process of pressing. I learned this when I was in Israel. I went to this place called the Mount of Olives. It's this mountain that's just outside of the old city of Jerusalem, and on this mountain, it is peppered with olive trees. And this is a mountain that Jesus would visit regularly with his disciples. The centerpiece of this mountainside is the Garden of Gethsemane. Sound familiar? This is the last place that Jesus spent, he spent the last night of uh, his life before he was arrested and tried and executed on the cross. He spent it there with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the place where he was under so much duress that he literally sweated drops of blood. He was saying, God, is there any other way that we could save humanity? And the place, is called, um, the place is called Gethsemane because Gethsemane in the Greek means the place of pressing. It was an olive press. But in the other common language of the day, Aramaic, it was referred to as Gadsemane. Gadsemane means the place of ascension. Don't, don't miss this. Two diametrically opposed concepts are describing the same location. Pressing, ascension. Down, up. Incidentally, this is the same place that Jesus ascended into heaven after he appeared to over 500 people after the resurrection. This is the same place we believe that he's gonna descend when he comes back and he fully and finally eradicates sin, eradicates death, and wipes every tear away from our eyes. But don't miss the message he's telling us in the in-between. Pressing ascension, down, up. You and I will not be able to step into our calling until we first undergo crushing. God's got an ascension plan for every single one of us, but it first requires pressing. Why? Because if we prematurely step into that ascension plan that he has for for each one of us, we might be tempted in our own flesh to think that we were the ones that put ourselves there. And God doesn't want us walking around with this swagger in life. He'd rather us walking around with a limp so that when people see our lives and our life stories, they go, man, if God can do something through a person like that, he can certainly do something in my story as well. And then God gets the glory and we get the joy. And, and then we're not full up of pride, but, but God gets all of the credit for everything that he's done. And in our weakness, he is made strong. And then it says, my cup overflows. But man, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I didn't feel like my cup was overflowing. I felt like it was empty. 
I felt totally deplete. Sometimes, friends, God has to empty our cups before he can overflow our cups. Because God likes to serve up his food and drink on clean dishes. So perhaps he needs to empty our cups of all the contaminants that are inside of our cup that is clogging the flow of his spirit through our lives. He's got to clean us up of our pride, of our jealousy, of our comparison, of our envy, of our gossip, of our slander. And then he always fills up what he empties and fills it up with pure water. But it doesn't say he's just going to fill it up, does it? It says he overflows our cups. And when he overflows our cups, friends, it overflows onto other people's cups. He's increasing your capacity for influence in other people's lives. I'm telling you right now that whatever pain you have walked through, he is using that pain as a redemptive process to help other people in their pain. You'd be amazed at how many different people in your specific type of pain get drawn to you because God's bringing them to you so that you can show them light. He's increasing your, 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 your platform. He's using this pain as a platform. He's using the pain as a megaphone to help other people. He's helping you be become a better boss, a better employee, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent by allowing you to endure some kind of pain. He's increasing your capacity. And then the last thing is this. He's mixing the ingredients. He's mixing the ingredients. Um, can I invite my friend? Is our wor the worship leader here? Is, are, you, are you in here? I don't know. No, okay. Well, I was going to see if he could just come bring me some Holy Spirit picking, but that's okay. <laughs> the Holy Spirit moves without music, too. That's okay, right? Um, I brought some cakes up here with me. Now, I wish I could say I made these cakes. Uh, I have been getting a little bit better at the baking process of things. Um, I'm learning how to, to bake and cook right now, but these cakes are from Target, so. How many of you guys like cake? You like cake? Come on. I've been learning a little bit about the process of baking cakes. I've got Oreo cake right here, and I've got some vanilla cake right here. In baking cakes, there is um, two different types of ingredients. Oh, nice, awesome. There's two different types of ingredients. The first type is the type of ingredient that you would eat by itself, right? Like sugar. Come on. <laughs> I just pour some sugar. Every time I, say, I think of like this 80s song that we probably shouldn't reference in church. Anyways, um, <laughs> icing. I love icing. Like I usually take the corner piece of the cake. That's, that's my piece. I go to a wedding. I'm like, I'll take the corner piece because I want more icing, right? I mean, this one has an Oreo on top of it. Come on. You're going to eat an Oreo all by itself. You'll be totally fine with eating an Oreo by itself. But there's other types of ingredients that you're not going to take by themselves. Like uh, Salt. I'm not pouring salt on my hand and licking it. You might, that might be your preference, that's fine. It's a little weird, but that's okay. Baking soda. Flour, you know? Like, that would be an awesome youth group game. Like, how much flour can you eat in 60 seconds without <laughs> drinking any wine? You're like, chubby bunny, you know, that kind of thing, but dry you out like crazy. Raw egg? No, I'm sorry, Rocky Balboa, I'm not doing raw egg. But the way that you make cake is you take both of those types of ingredients and you put them in a mixing bowl and you mix them together. 
kind of reminds me of this verse, a really well-known verse in Romans chapter eight that I completely misinterpreted my entire life. It says, and we know that for those who love God, he works all things, what? Together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I interpreted that as if you love God, everything's gonna be good. And that's not true. And you might be in a situation right now where you don't feel like it's a one through three verse seasons of life. You don't feel like it's these sweet seasons of life. You feel more like it's a flower season or a baking soda season. But can I tell you something, friends? You put your life in the hands of the master baker and you allow him to take the sweet seasons of life and the bitter seasons and he puts it into his mixing bowl and he works all things, come on, what? Together. And then he takes that and he pours it into this cake pan that gives it shape and form. And then he'll put it in the cosmic oven. And he'll turn the temperature up a little bit. And then he gives it a little time. And then before you know it, pulls it out and Ecclesiastes says he makes all things beautiful in his time see Psalm 23 says surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever can I ask you three to come up here and help me out with this real quick? You guys need to help me land this plane. Yeah, I'll you three. It's okay. I'm not going to ask you to say anything or whatever. Just come on up here real quick. Just come up here real quick. I want you, you're going to represent Jesus for us. Can we use our imaginations? You're going to be Jesus for us. Um, so you're going you're gonna to actually stand right here. I'm going to let you hold this right here. You're going to represent goodness. Because I need you to know that in your life, Jesus is mixing the ingredients for goodness. And then you're going to represent mercy. It's because when I look at an Oreo cake, I go, oh, mercy. <laughs> Watch what Psalm 23 is telling us, friends. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. And when the Lord is my shepherd, that means I follow him through the valley. You know that Jesus has experienced every single valley that you and I have experienced. We do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with our plight. But he is one that has subjected himself to every single thing, the human experience. He understands. You feel like nobody understands? He understands, and he knows how to walk you through the valley. The problem is, is we sit in our valley and we wallow in it. And for many people, they have been wallowing in their valley for 20 years, taking on a victim mentality. And it's time today, friends, to be free of that. You can weep without wallowing. And how do you do that? You walk. You walk steady a step at a time behind Jesus. But some of us, man, we're trying to manipulate it. We're trying to force Jesus to go in our direction. We're trying to force him to go in our ways. We're asking him to bless the things that we're doing rather than doing the things he already blesses. If we start following Jesus, that's all we got to do is tuck ourselves behind Jesus. And Jesus goes this way right here. Guess what Psalm 23 tells me? That goodness and mercy follow me. So come on, you got to come following me because it's a commandment. Jesus is not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. 
And so as I follow Jesus, Jesus decides to go around this way. Guess what's following me? Goodness and mercy are following me. And as Jesus decides he's going to go down these steps right here, I'm going to follow him down these steps. And guess what has to follow me? Goodness and mercy follow me. Now stop. I was preaching this message at Amanda's home church a year after she passed away. And I got to this part in the message and the Lord stopped me. It was a rather awkward experience because I was like dumbfounded a little bit. And the the congregation was like, "Uh, is he okay? Is everything all right? And I felt like, because up to that moment, I didn't feel like goodness and mercy were following me. But a year later, I felt like the Lord stopped me in like in this deep impression of the Holy Spirit. You ever felt that before? It's like this wave washes over you. It's like you can see everything within a moment. The Lord whispered this into my spirit. He said, Davey, you don't know something's following you until you look back. And after you've given it some time, you look back and you see all of the ways that God's hand has providentially woven your healing and how he's provided things for you along the journey and people around you and how he's beginning to reestablish your life. Scripture says that the God of all grace, he himself will restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish your life feet and you don't know it until you look back. The psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. What's the best predictor of God's future faithfulness? His past provision. I know faithful he has been, so faithful he will be. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me because goodness and mercy have been following me all the days of my life. God begins to write the story of redemption in your life. And redemption doesn't happen, friends, when he begins restoring things to you. It happens when you decide to step up out of your pain, to walk and follow Jesus, and to use your pain to help somebody else. That's when redemption happens in your life. But then the icing on the cake, so to speak, he begins restoring things back into your life. He makes the thief repay sevenfold what he stole from you. And a little over a year ago, I got to see God's redemptive story continue when I remarried. I met this beautiful gal. Her name's Christy and her daughter, Natalia. Because I lost a wife and an unborn baby girl. And God said all in one moment, I want to restore that back to you. You know what I've nicknamed them? Goodness and mercy. And now, friends, coming October, we're expecting one of our own, and God's continuing to write his redemption story. But listen, friends, it's only, our lives are only a beacon of light for you to go, you know what? If God can do that through them, he can do that in me as well. So would you bow your, bow your heads? Would you close your eyes with me? And thank you guys so much for, you can just put those down right there. I want to create some space right here in this moment for you to wrestle with God. I have no idea what you brought into this place. I have no idea what burdens you're, you're wrestling with. I have no idea what pain you're currently going through, but God does. And he says we can cast our cares on him because he cares for us.
We're not meant to carry that burden. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. In this moment, would you just tell God what you are wrestling with? Surrender it to him. Maybe you recognize that you haven't been following him in your valley. Maybe you've been trying to forge your own path here. Maybe in this moment, you just need to surrender and say, Jesus, I want to follow after you. Maybe in this moment, you recognize you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never actually taken the first step to to give your life to him, to yield to him, to give over the keys of your life and to enter into this beautiful exchange where he forgives your sin, where he cleans you up, he power washes your soul, he takes all of your sin and departs it away from you as far as the east is from the west. He says he remembers it no more and maybe today you need to make Jesus your Lord and your shepherd. If that's you, I want to invite you into to a time of prayer and response. If you, need to, if you need to be rescued by Jesus today, if you need to enter into relationship with him, would you right where you are say, Dear Jesus, I need you. Today I want to give you my life. I've tried for years to do this thing on my own, and I'm falling short. Today I hand my life over to you. I ask that you would save me, that you would rescue me, that you would change me, and that from here on out, God, that you would guide me through valleys and mountaintops. Would you steer the direction of my life? Teach me how to follow after you. Forgive me of all of my sin and put me on a new path with a new identity. In your name I pray.